The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, your source for ready-for-anything outerwear this winter. L.L. Bean outerwear is packed with the most advanced materials and innovations, from high-performance jackets with NASA-developed technology to versatile fleece that layers with anything. When it comes to outdoor comfort, they've got you covered. Visit LLBean.com to find a store or shop now. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Welcome to this month's News from the Parks episode of America's National Parks, where we round up for you the latest info about happenings at America's greatest treasures. I'm Jason Epperson. On his first day in office, President Biden signed an executive order issuing his long-expected federal mask mandate, which applies to areas where the president has the authority to issue such policies, federal buildings, federal lands, airports, airplanes, etc., 28% of American land is federal, including lands operated by the National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, and other agencies. Much of it's recreational, and a lot of people are confused about whether or not they're now legally required to wear masks when walking on a trail far from other people or sitting around their own campsite. It's not surprising that there's little clarity since much of the media reporting just says masks are now required in national parks. But let's take a look at the actual text of the order. It states in part that individuals in federal buildings and on federal lands should all wear masks, maintain physical distance, and adhere to other public health measures as provided in CDC guidelines. It goes on to say that the heads of agencies shall immediately take action as appropriate and consistent with applicable law to require compliance with CDC guidelines with respect to wearing masks, maintaining physical distance, and other public health measures by all persons in federal buildings or on federal lands. As you can see, the order simply requiring that people in federal buildings and on federal land follow CDC mask wearing and social distancing guidelines. The current CDC guidelines for mask wearing say that people aged two and older should wear masks in public settings and when around people who don't live in their household. But they also say that masks may not be necessary when you're outside by yourself away from others or with people who live in your household. So it would appear that the presidential mask order isn't that much different from most state mask orders, just applying the same principles to federal buildings and public lands. If you're near people or in a building, wear a mask. Wear one at scenic overlooks or have it in your pocket if no one else is around, just in case someone shows up. Even trails that aren't too busy often require that you pass a lot of people. Now, this executive order does provide for agency heads to make some more specific rules. So be on the lookout at national parks and other federal recreation areas for more in the coming days. A landmark ruling by a D.C. federal judge marks unconstitutional a 20-year-old law requiring commercial filmmakers in national parks and on other federal lands to obtain a permit. We recently reported on popular bloggers and vloggers Kara and Nate, who released a YouTube video about their fine from the National Park Service for commercial filming on public lands without a permit. A law passed in 2000 required the secretaries of agriculture and the interior to establish a reasonable fee for commercial filming activities or similar projects on federal lands. The law was an attempt to compensate the federal government for the costs in supervising film productions and to help protect our special places from activity that may cause harm. It's a noble cause, but the law was passed around the time that Internet usage surpassed only about 50 percent of homes. 
It was five years before YouTube and seven years before the iPhone. In the time since, the National Park Service and other federal agencies have taken a hard line on the rule for anyone intending to make money, including news organizations, documentaries, and people that make pennies from YouTube revenue. Even people who aren't making money from YouTube or Facebook revenue might have been running afoul of the law because Facebook and YouTube are making money from those videos. Commercial filming has been declared by the National Park Service as recording of a visual image or sound recording by a person, business, or other entity for a market audience. But it doesn't explain what a market audience is. This includes recordings such as those used for documentaries, educational programs, television and feature films, of course, and advertisements and similar projects. There's an exception for breaking news, which some parks define as narrowly as anything that would cause a news program to break into regular programming. Not a lot of that happening in national parks. The permit process required an application fee that could range into the hundreds and a shoot fee of at least $150 a day if you wanted to shoot for four or more hours, even if you're just taking a cell phone camera on a trail for your vlog. Well, last Friday, U.S. District Judge Colleen Collar Coatley took issue with the law saying that the statute imposes a chilling effect on the expressive activities of a wide swath of national park visitors. Indie film director Gordon Price had sued the government, challenging the constitutionality of the statute. In 2018, law enforcement rangers at Yorktown National Battlefield issued him a citation for filming without a permit for his feature Crawford Road. Price was filming by himself with a tripod and a camera. There have been very few challenges to the law, as often when a person who's been fined threatens legal action, the National Park Service backs down and rescinds the fine in order to avoid a negative ruling just like this one. In fact, in this case, the Department of Justice tried to argue that the court had no jurisdiction to hear the case since the fine had already been rescinded. But Price argued on his own behalf that he would like to film again at some point in the future and that a civil suit was the only way his case could be heard. The judge agreed and ruled in favor of Price, determining the ban on filming in national parks was unreasonable in its scope, stating that a more specific law targeting film crews would have a better chance at being constitutional. Judge Collar Coatley further issued a permanent injunction against the practice. Since Price was only arguing about film production, the ruling does not apply to commercial still photographers who are required to obtain a permit only if they're using more equipment than a camera and a tripod or using models. I'd expect new rules about equipment used from the National Park Service and other federal land agencies in the near future in order to try and regain some control over film production that actually does disrupt conservation and public enjoyment of these spaces. The National Park Service announced on January 23rd that the Washington Monument will close until further notice as a measure to protect staff and visitors from the spread of COVID-19. The monument closed on January 11th for security reasons surrounding the 59th presidential inauguration. The National Park Service will monitor public health conditions in the D.C. area, as well as the opening status of other nearby visitor attractions and reopening the monument and other indoor park facilities as soon as it deems safe to do so. With the closure of the Washington Monument, all indoor attractions managed as part of the National Mall and Memorial Parks are now closed as a COVID-19 mitigation measure. Outdoor memorials on the National Mall remain open, as do public restroom facilities. Future Big Bend visitors will have another opportunity to enjoy the park's wide-open spaces when work is completed on a new hiking trail next year. 
The Lone Mountain Trail will circumnavigate the base of Lone Mountain, an imposing feature just north of Park Headquarters at Panther Junction. After a long drive to Big Bend and an arrival at Panther Junction Visitor Center to plan their adventure, many visitors seek out hiking in the immediate area, where no trails now exist. The new trail will offer a moderately challenging three-mile loop through the Chihuahuan Desert, conveniently beginning and ending in Panther Junction. Highlights of the route include spectacular views of the surrounding mountains, a wide variety of desert plants and animals, and the interesting volcanic features of Lone Mountain itself. The National Park Service began planning for a trail in this area in 2010 when it published an environmental assessment for a new trail-based recreational opportunity. The original decision, documented in a finding of no significant impact in 2012, was to build a 10-mile multi-use trail which would allow mountain bike use. The decision to allow mountain bikes was highly controversial. The rationale was based in part on the lack of mountain biking opportunities in the Big Bend area. Since 2008, however, 135 miles of nearby mountain biking trails have opened in state parks. Big Bend's 181 miles of unpaved two-wheel and four-wheel drive roads are also open to bicycle use and provide outstanding backcountry bicycling opportunities. The need and context have changed since the original decision, but the benefits of an opportunity for visitors to stretch their legs after a long drive to Panther Junction remains, hence the decision to allow mountain bikes on the trail. Construction of the new trail will occur in 2022 by the Big Bend National Park trail crew and volunteers. Speaking of trails, a three-year project to restore access to 10,000 miles of national park trails has been completed. Thanks to the National Park Foundation and its sponsor, Nature Valley, which donated $3 million to the three-year project. Service Corps crews have removed invasive species, cleared corridors, repaired structures, built boardwalks, and managed other repair projects to make trails in 19 parks across 16 states more accessible to visitors. One project improved access to Bridal Vale Falls at Yosemite. Another helped rehabilitate trails and preserve historical sites at Glacier. Invasive plant control work and native plant restoration took place at Lunch Beach at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. Part of the Arizona National Scenic Trail was restored at Grand Canyon and five miles of degraded trails that served as key access points to the Appalachian Trail were repaired at Shenandoah National Park. Nature Valley is extending the partnership for three more years and is committed to an additional $3 million to restore 10,000 more miles of trails. Three new national natural landmarks have been designated by the Department of the Interior. The sites in West Virginia, Colorado, and California bring the total number of national natural landmarks in the U.S. to 602, heralding an important milestone for the program. The new sites are Bear Rocks and Allegheny Front Preserve in West Virginia, Sulphur Cave and Spring in Colorado, and Lanfear and Malel Dunes in California. Bear Rocks and Allegheny Front Preserve is owned by the Nature Conservancy and is the best example of a plateau within the Appalachian Plateau's province. This stunning high elevation plateau provides a vantage point from which to view the surrounding lands for miles. It also supports a diverse ecology, including cold adapted, windswept spruce trees, normally found much further north. Sulphur Cave and Spring in Colorado is owned by the city of Steamboat Springs and is a superb example of a cave formed solely by sulfuric acid, an extremely rare process of cave formation. The cave's toxic underground environment would typically preclude life. 
However, Sulfur Cave contains a flourishing bacterial community that actually aids in the cave's development and a recently discovered blood red worm that is unique to the cave found nowhere else in the world. Landfear and Malel Dunes in California is owned by the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and represents one of the most diverse and highest quality remnants of coastal dunes habitat in the North Pacific border. It's within the Humboldt Bay National Wildlife Refuge and includes a diverse array of native vegetation. It's known for several species of rare flora. The site is very scenic and affords the public an inspiring view of a natural coastal ecosystem that was once common along the western coast. The National Natural Landmarks Program, administered by the National Park Service, recognizes and encourages the conservation of sites that contain outstanding biological and geological resources. Sites are designated by the Secretary of the Interior for their outstanding condition, illustrative character, rarity, diversity, and value to science and education. National Park Service staff work cooperatively with landowners, managers, and partners to promote conservation and appreciation of our nation's natural heritage. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. If you like the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, listen to the Sea America podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.